This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. Visit whereyou'refrom.org for more information. That's where, Y-A, from, O-R-G. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Assistant at the Howard Hendricks Center for Christian Leadership and Cultural Engagement. And the man who's normally driving this podcast <laughs> is Dr. Daryl Bach, who is one of our experts today. Daryl is the uh, Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at Dallas Theological Seminary and the Executive Director of the Howard Hendricks Center. Mm-hmm. And we also have in studio Justin Bass. We can call him a, a veteran of foreign wars now, I think. That's right. He's it's great, to be, back back. It's great yeah. to be back. It's good to have you. Uh, and our topic today is the historical resurrection of Jesus. And we want to approach it this way today as we talk about moving into the, the, uh, the time where we, we talk about the, the resurrection of Jesus around Easter time with our skeptical friends and relatives. We want to approach it from the idea that in this, this cultural shift that's taken place, where, as Daryl often likes to say, that uh, the Bible is no longer the answer, but the question mm-hmm. in the minds of many people, how can we talk to our skeptical friends and our skeptical neighbors, coworkers, about the data surrounding the resurrection reports in such a way that um, they can look into it for themselves? You know, is there a way to do that um, with people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired or inerrant? So as we get started, I just want to um, start, Justin, by asking you if you would um, tell us about the ancient sources that are the best sources for us to look into as as we investigate the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, we really have, I would say, seven different independent sources that that fall within the first century of accounts of the resurrection of Jesus that we can work with. And I'll give you, I'll give them kind of quickly in a, in a kind of a chronological order. So the earliest would be these creeds that Paul quotes within his letters. So that would be primarily this, this particular creed in 1 Corinthians 15 that he quotes that goes back to within two to five years after Jesus' death. And we might talk about that a little later. But then after that, I would say the next source would be Paul, because Paul is actually a direct eyewitness of the, of the resurrection. He says, the Lord Jesus appeared to me. So Paul's mm-hmm. early letters is also a source. After that would be our earliest gospel. So that would be Mark. Uh, the, the gospel of Mark doesn't actually have a resurrection appearance, depending on the, the longer ending of Mark, but it does uh, have the angels and, the, and Jesus himself say, I will rise again. Mm-hmm. And it has that. So that would be a testimony. And then we would have L, what, what scholars call L, the, the Luke's special material, mm-hmm. which we have accounts of the resurrection um, uh, appearances of Jesus at the end of Luke, but also in Acts. And some scholars would even separate the sermons in Acts as another source. So, so there in the, in the sermons of Peter and in the sermons of Paul, you also have testimonies to uh, the, hmm. the, the resurrection of Jesus. And then M would be like the special material of Matthew. That he, uh, Matthew has some resurrection appearances that don't occur in any of the other Gospels. And then you have John. And so if, if John is an independent source from the other Gospels, then John as well would be um, another, another source. And I think I, I got all seven for you. Okay. So that's, that's, right. the seven. <laughs> that's what we call multiple attestation there in historical go. Jesus studies, that, that the wider the distribution across a series of, uh, 
of uh, sources, and sometimes you can also discuss if it appears in different forms, uh, different kinds of stories, the more likely this is to be historical and to go back. And so the resurrection is widely attested mm -hmm. and uh, as, an, as an event that took place, and that's what we're alluding to. So the, for example, the unique material in John, the unique appearance of the Doubting Thomas is, an, is a resurrection appearance unique to John, marking out whether John knows the gospel traditions of the resurrection or not, or used the gospels, which is something scholars debate. That particular event doesn't appear anywhere else and is, is a form of independent attestation for some of the Johannine material. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you have people saying, well, look, I don't believe the Bible, and you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And yet, you find atheists and agnostic scholars who are using the Bible in their, in their research. What's a good way to help people understand um, the way that historians go about looking at these sources? Well, what we're talking about in this particular case is what evidence is there for – If you think of, think of Jesus' career as, as a wave that, that ripples, okay, or you know, when you drop a rock in a lake and you have ripples, so there's an effect. Mm -hmm. And the effect of that is, to, is, to, is for those events to be deposited in memory, in the tradition, that kind of thing. And, and you have these traditions coming from different locations, different places, um, different origin points, that kind of thing. And so if you've got an event that's, that's attested to in, in these variety of locations, the argument is that there must be something substantive that triggered that memory spread across that swath of material. Mm -hmm. uh, so this isn't arguing for something simply because it's in the Bible. It's arguing for something because it's in uh, the, the deposits of tradition coming from various locations that have coalesced in, in biblical texts, but actually have come from disparate locations elsewhere, uh, but all testifying to the same fundamental event. Mm -hmm. So to help our friends see rather than, hey, it's in the Bible, so it's true. It's showing them that what is in the Bible is actually true, and that's there's corroborating right. evidence for that. And it's important to realize that you know the, those sources I broke up. That that's uh, even someone like Bart Ehrman would, when he writes his book on the historical Jesus, he's looking at those sources that that same way. Even though he doesn't believe they're even reliable, he he just is looking for certain things he can find that are true within those, according to him, unreliable sources. Yeah, one of the things you get into in the historical discussion is is that, is that the, the mere fact of it being testified across all these sequences doesn't prove the truthfulness of the material in it, but what it does show is, is that very early on within the tradition of the early church, this kind of thing was being passed on, and so you still have the judgment about the actual internal contents of what it is that you're mm -hmm. dealing with, but but the the thing that, that multiplied testimony is saying here is is that we've got testimony to the fact that Jesus was raised, demonstrating itself in a variety of texts, coming to us from a variety of angles that have now coalesced in the Scripture, and and that at least puts a, a, a kind of burden of proof on the situation. Uh, in in that I've got so many people talking about this kind of an event. So so what does that mean for the mm -hmm, event? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You know? mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> so. When, let, let's start with the, the crucifixion of Jesus, because in some ways a, a discussion of the resurrection has to start with the crucifixion, because unless Jesus actually died, we can't talk about resurrection. Right. There are some people, not so much in the, in the scholarly community, but um, certainly on the internet, certainly all over YouTube, um, who will argue that Jesus wasn't even a real person, that Jesus uh, wasn't really crucified. What are some of the ancient sources that we have um, that, that corroborate what we know um, is in the scripture about uh, the crucifixion of Jesus? 
Yeah, yeah. Unlike the, you know, the resurrection where maybe some people would doubt the resurrection, the crucifixion is just not doubted by, you know, we could, we could almost say unanimously among people who are teaching full-time credentialed scholars uh, in the, in the, in, as historians or New Testament scholars, we not only have the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, just about every book of the New Testament testifying to the crucif- crucifixion of Jesus. We also have early Christians outside the New Testament, so we have the what's called the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, Ignatius would be an example, um, dating to about the turn of the, the first to, to second century. He's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate very specifically. We also have um, unbelievers, people who are not Christians. We have uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian who uh, most uh, Josephus scholars would agree, even though there's some uh, tampering with a certain text about Jesus in this uh, uh, account from uh, Antiquities in uh, Book 18, we still have the uh, testif- uh, testimony that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that mm-hmm. Josephus is at least saying that. Louis uh, Feldman, who's considered the top Josephus scholar in the world, would would um, agree with that. And then we also have Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, mm-hmm. who's also, just a little bit after Josephus, he's telling us that Christos, who clearly is Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And so here we have a Roman historian, Jewish historian, and multiple um, attestation, again, from the New Testament that Jesus was crucified. And so we have uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from the Bible beater, uh, John Dominique mm-hmm. Crossan, mm-hmm. uh, definitely not a fundamentalist, not a, mm-hmm. not a Bible beater, but he said that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Excellent. And yeah. so I, I think that's, that's the way we should say it. It's as sure as if, if we can know history, we can know, we can know the temple was destroyed in AD mm-hmm. 70, mm-hmm. Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and we can know Jesus was crucified. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote. And when you see people from the, the right and the left and straight down the center you know, agreeing on something, you're going to pay attention to that, right? It's powerful. Yeah. That's right. Well, Daryl, my understanding is that the majority of scholars actually agree that Jesus' uh, tomb was found empty by his women followers. Uh, but how do we know that Jesus was, first of all, buried? And then secondly, what's the data that supports the uh, women finding his tomb empty? Well, uh, the, the idea that the tomb was empty, of course, you can't get to the kerygma that's being preached in the early church unless there was an empty tomb and no body. If you, had, if you had a body somewhere, that would be the end of the message and the mm-hmm. ability to spread the message. Mm-hmm. So, so it really is the nature of the emergence of the early church in some ways that is the, and the emergence of the apostles as uh, kind of the testimony to the fact that there's, there is an empty tomb and there was a tradition that circulated around the resurrection. Um, the evidence involving the women uh, being the witnesses is again uh, a multi-stranded kind of uh, evidence where we are dealing with um, what's coming out of the Gospels in particular and the, there are differences of course in how these are told but uh, but the idea of women being the first witnesses argues against a made-up story. Mm-hmm. And here's why. In the ancient culture, women could not be witnesses for anything except a few cases uh, like um, sexual abuse where you needed their testimony to establish uh, what had taken place or try to establish that. So there are traditions. Now these are later traditions, but they reflect the spirit of the time uh, from the Mishnah. Mishnah Shavuot 4.1 says, an oath of testimony applies to men but not to women. Or Mishnah Rosh Hashanah 1.8 says, any evidence 
uh, a woman is not eligible to bring. Uh, and so these are statements to the fact that women weren't witnesses. So imagine, uh, I like to say, imagine the PR meeting of the early church. Jesus is hmm. crucified. You've got a dead Messiah. You don't know that he's going to be raised from the dead, and you're thinking, how do you keep hope alive for this movement in which we've lost our leader? And so someone in the public relations meeting gets together and says, oh, I know what we'll do. We're going we're gonna to sell an idea that a lot of people don't believe a bodily resurrection, mm -hmm. and we're going to use witnesses to do it that the culture doesn't buy. <laughs> That's how we're going to do it. <laughs> and so this fits what's called the criterion of embarrassment, that, that the early church would never make up a story that had these elements in it. So the fact that the women are in the story shows that the women were in the real story. Mm. And that's that's uh, that's where the the substantial view that that this tradition is not something that would be made up and passed on. In fact, it's so strong. Interestingly enough, when we do get to the doctrinal summary in First Corinthians 15, the women actually have disappeared. Mm -hmm. Okay, we may have an empty tomb with regard to Jesus. <laughs> that's right, but we got but we got empty witnesses with regard mm. to the First Corinthians 15 testimony. Yeah, we start with Peter and we go from there because by the time they've cleaned it up in the creeds, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, it's the men witnesses that count. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think the, the, the same argument, I don't know if we can talk about it more, but uh, with Joseph Arimathea burying Jesus, I mean, the same kind of embarrassment. If they're going to make up somebody, you know, they're not going to make up one of the people that actually you know, may have cast the vote for Jesus hmm. to be crucified. They're not going to make put him in such a positive light. Uh, that's probably the way it happened. I remember uh, Joseph Fitzmaier in his two-volume commentary on Luke. He says, who, who would have made him up? I mean, mm -hmm. he, he, he argues for the historicity of that because who would have made up Joseph Arimathea. And you go up to the trouble of naming him, okay, which really marks him out, okay, in a context in which people are still alive who are, you know, who are around him, that kind of thing. And so that, that's, that's another suggestion that tells us that this is a deeply rooted tradition. Mm -hmm. now, there are some people who look at the, the different stories of the women in, in the different Gospels and say, hey, these, these kind of look different. Like in Matthew, we've got a couple of Marys. In Mark, we've got a couple of Marys and uh, Salome, or Salome, mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. how you say that lady's mm -hmm. name. And then in um, Luke, we get you know, the two Marys and another lady's name. And how do we put these these things together? Well, that's just a matter. That those are the easy part in some ways. That's just a choice of how many witnesses are you going to name that mm -hmm. that that witnessed it. So, you do get differing numbers in that regard. The the harder difference that you deal with is the exchange uh, between Jesus and Mary and John. Uh, where Jesus identifies himself to Mary after the initial appearance, and the initial report of the women to the disciples is they've stolen the body and we don't know where they've taken him. Okay, mm -hmm. they don't walk in saying Jesus is raised from the dead and we saw the angels, but but it, it starts off with that place, and so so that tension is is probably the most difficult of the of the differences with uh, on the resurrection in the early accounts. Now, my own take on this is that. Um, that what you get in in John is a kind of literary re chronological reshuffling, which he doesn't identify for you. He just simply does it. And that is, first he tells the story of how he came to hear about the resurrection, and then he goes back and recollects this appearance to Mary. So it actually, chronologically, it's probably in a different order, but it's not being told in the sequence it belongs in, because John told first the story about how he came to know about the resurrection. And the way I foresee this happening is the women come in and they start to tell the story of um, they've taken the body and we don't know where he is. Well, for John and for Peter, that's good enough. 
they're out the door headed towards trying to find out what happened to the tomb. And then the synoptic gospel traditions pick up the rest of the telling of the story, if you will, what the women said to the group that was, that was remaining there while these two guys have run to check out what, what's gone on. Peter's kind of had a lesson uh, up to this point in learning to trust what the Lord says as a result of his three denials. Mm-hmm. And so he's inclined, I think, to, to, uh, to pursue this. And then John, of course, has a reputation of being the one who's closest to the Lord. So, so they get it as the more sensitive disciples, and they head out. And then, like I say, we, we recover this, this appearance um, down the road, uh, and, and John is actually mentioning something that sorted itself earlier in the sequence. Mm-hmm. And what I like to emphasize, you know, with our skeptical friends is they like to, you know, point out, you know, how many women were there, how many angels. But let's talk about what do all the sources agree on? Hmm. They all agree the tomb was empty. They Mm -hmm. all agree a woman was there. They all agree an angel was there. They all agree Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, so we have the core, and we have this with many historical accounts in the ancient world. You have different. You have a lot of differences in how something is described, but you have. The fire in Rome, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the actual core fact of history that happened, and then you have, might have some ancillary details that aren't exactly, um, you know, whether they can be harmonizable or not. I think what's most important about is what is the core fact that they all point to. And the mm-hmm. empty tomb and the resurrection is what mm-hmm. they do. And the interesting thing about the resurrection in, in relationship to a leader of a movement is, is that normally when you when – you in fact, I think this was Rome's strategy. If you cut off the leader, you cut off the movement. And so, um, so the idea was, we'll go after Jesus, we'll execute him. That'll be the end of the movement. Uh, and and the way the the early church community dealt with that wasn't to appoint someone to take Jesus's place. Mm-hmm. Okay, that wasn't doable anyway. But still, they didn't do that. But if a movement was to continue to live in most circumstances, that would be how you do it. The movement would either die, or you would have someone take the former leader's place, and the movement would go on, and he'd be the one to lead it. Well, you don't have either of those scenarios here. Here, you've got a group that says. We were disappointed. We thought we thought it was over when Jesus was crucified. We thought that was the end, and then lo and behold, we became convinced that something else happened. Um, it's interesting that liberal scholars, the way they handle the resurrection, goes something like this: the disciples believed a resurrection happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, that doesn't mean a resurrection happened. And mm-hmm. so, but notice how that's kind of like mm-hmm. almost halfway there. Yeah. That they mm-hmm. that they suffered from some level of grief reversal or whatever that that they became convinced that Jesus was alive when he really wasn't, then that sustained them. That that's the that's the um, classic the, the most classic liberal position on the resurrection is that. Mm-hmm. But that's a, an admission that they weren't lying. That's Nobody right. That there's something on. There's a there's a they are reporting on an authentic experience that they had. They've just in, misinterpreted what took place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I got a perfect quote for that. Can I can I read this one quote sure. from Paula Friedrichsen, who's an agnostic New mm-hmm. Testament scholar? She says, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, right? exactly. What did they see? Yeah. What did they see? What did they see? Yeah. No, it's a, it is, it's, it's, it's a classic way of presenting it, and, and, and the idea is, is that they were so overtaken by their conviction of a resurrection that of course, they were willing to die for it and everything else that comes with it because, of course, what 
happens in standard Christian apologetics when you talk about this, of course, is, well, the very fact that they were willing to die for it shows the, the truth, that the very reversal of the behavior shows the truth. You know, another example, for example, the criterion of embarrassment that supports the historicity of an aspect of something leading to Jesus' life and death is the whole story of Peter's three denials. You know, would the early church make up a story in which, you know, one of the people who became viewed as almost the chief representative of the movement ends up showing um, intense defection mm-hmm. during the very moment of crisis. It's not exactly the way to commend, or, commend your future leadership. Mm-hmm. What about you know? Jesus calling him Satan? Exactly mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. It's early. He's another exa- another example of the same kind of thing. So there, there are little hints along the way in how the story is told that tell you that's not something that would be made up. And, and not only is that not part not made up, but it occurs in a context of an event that would be unlikely to be made up as well. So, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, that's how the criterion of embarrassment works when, you, when you're trying to suggest that, that there is some truthfulness to the content that you're encountering at a historical level. Mm-hmm. And even though we have different uh, details here and there, it's actually better that we have more than one account, right? Because if we right. just had one account, there'd be no differences to talk about. And if all the accounts were exactly the same, I guarantee you what people would say is, ah, oh, that was conclu- collusion, all nothing, just... no, all came together mm-hmm. and, that, mm-hmm. and told the same story. So you, you can't win either way in some ways. But, but it is, it, it is a, the nature of, of the beast, some, so to speak, when, when we're in a a mood and a culture and a context in which tends to be so skeptical. And I tell people, look, these are legitimate questions people are asking. These differences are legitimate kinds of things to raise in which people are asking oftentimes very sincere questions. Some people may have taken them on with a hint of skepticism, but a lot of people who ask these questions simply are repeating what they've heard and they can see the differences in the accounts. Mm-hmm. So these are real questions that you're dealing with. So I don't think you should you should uh, belittle a question, even though it may come from a, a skeptical place, mm-hmm. because it because it it may actually reflect a real curiosity about an oddity that that does need some attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are hard questions, but there are, there are good answers. Exactly to those hard right. Questions exactly as well. right. Follow the evidence where it leads. Yeah. That's right. So I think we've seen that difference doesn't have to mean contradiction. That's right. It's not like the women got there and Jesus' body was still in the tomb. I mean, That's that would right. be a contradiction. That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> and we've talked about historical evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus, historical evidence for the empty tomb, and the fact that his followers, at least, um, had experiences that they really believed were experiences of the risen Jesus. And the million-dollar question is, what caused that belief? Yeah, it's fascinating that Paul, in his earliest letters, which are the earliest documents we have in the New Testament, he quotes some of these early, you could say, whether they were written or, or they were oral, Either way, they, they, they go back to within that first decade or even first, first five years after Jesus' death. And one of them is, is, is probably, probably the most important one, especially in dealing with the evidence for the resurrection, is the one that's found at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul introduces it. Let me, let me quote how, how he introduces the creed. He says, to, talking to the Corinthians, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, and then he quotes the creed. And so this is something that he gave to the Corinthians when he planted the church, sometime in the early 50s, but this is also something he received. Well, when did he receive it? Mm-hmm. And most scholars would say we learn that from Galatians 1, where Paul kind of gives his autobiography. He tells us that after his conversion uh, to, to, to Christ, after uh, coming to Christ, he three years later went to Jerusalem. And he tells us that he hung out with Peter for 15 days. He hung out with uh, James, the brother of Jesus, which we could have you know, fly on the wall and listen to, to those conversations. But 
this is probably when he received, and most scholars would agree, this is when he would have received this creedal tradition that he's now quoting in 1 Corinthians 15. And if that's true, then we're looking at within two to five years of after Jesus' death. And that's when he received it. So it could have been even earlier because it had to have been composed sometime before that. And so we're looking at, we're, we're coming up right at about two years, even within months of Jesus' death that this uh, creedal tradition was put together. And just to give you some quotes from people who uh, are not considered evangelical or fundamentalist, uh, Gerd Ludemann is an atheist, uh, a New Testament scholar. He said, we can assume that all the elements in the tradition, 1 Corinthians 15, are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And James Dunn, and Jesus remembered, he even uses the word months. He doesn't hmm. even use years. He says, within months hmm. of Jesus' death, we have this. So this is an incredible thing. I mean, this is what historians salivate over. I mean, to, to have this early uh, of testimony of uh, Jesus and the resurrection, what was going on in, in early Christianity. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So this creed, which is kind of like a memorized statement to help people pass on important information, pass on tradition, it has uh, appearances of Jesus that it lists to different people. And then Paul kind of throws himself in there too, right? right? That he saw Jesus. Now, when he talks about seeing, you know, I'm thinking about like in First First uh, Corinthians nine one, where he says, "Have I not seen Jesus our Lord?" And he uses this this word heorica um, in the Greek. Is that just a regular word? You teach Greek here, right, at Dallas Seminary, right? Is that just a regular word for seeing things physically, or does that open the door to some kind of a visionary kind of experience? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, learning the Greek doesn't solve all theological problems. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to tell students that. I wish it did, but uh, and and this word really just knowing the Greek word doesn't solve the problem in doing the background. So this word is, is the Greek word hara'o, and, and it's used in a lot of these contexts. And this word can mean, if you look at it in the Septuagint and in the New Testament, you find that it can be a visionary experience, but it can also be a physical appearance. So okay. just the word itself does not solve the problem. I think what how we know Paul saw something bodily, that he was saying that he saw the bodily resurrection of Jesus, is because uh, Paul was himself a Pharisee, and we know a lot about the backgrounds of, of, of most of the Jews, especially the Pharisees, and they believed that at the end of the world that this, there would be this general resurrection and it would be bodily. They believed in bodily resurrection. They would receive their bodies back. And so if Paul believed that the, this general resurrection began in the person of Jesus, then Jesus himself would have been bodily raised. And I think what's most definitive in Paul's letters on this is that Paul actually parallels our future or future believers' resurrection that he's talking to, like in Thessalonians and Romans. He says, just as your mortal bodies will be raised, similar to the way Jesus' body was raised. So he parallels 
our future bodily resurrection with Jesus's resurrection. Mm -hmm. So it's very clear that Paul believed that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. Uh, Marcus Bachmuel in his Cambridge Companion to Jesus, he says, you know, if, 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 he's, if, if, if Paul is talking about a burial that Jesus was buried, he didn't, when he said he was raised from the dead, he didn't think that a body stayed in there. I mean, that hmm. a body hmm. would have left. It was, it was a reanimation, a transformation, a glorification of that corpse. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's what Paul Well, definitely a, a, uh, a vision wouldn't explain the empty tomb. Right, it wouldn't explain exactly um, uh, the, the, he, he appeared to so many different people, right? And you don't have group hallucinations at different times in different places where people are seeing things that aren't there. And if I could just comment on that, on the, on the creed, that's what's incredible. In, in this little creed, this one little creed that we get that goes back, like I said, within that two years, we have appearances to individuals. Peter, James, mm -hmm. and Paul are specifically mentioned. Mm -hmm. We have a group appearances, like you said, to the 12, to over 500 at one time, who Paul says, hey, some of them are still alive. You can go interview them. You can go talk mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have died, but some of them are still alive. He appeals to it as evidence for the, the resurrection. And then also to all the apostles. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is multiple groups, even unbelievers, because Paul and James were not believers. And mm -hmm. so uh, an incredible list that we have that early uh, in this creedal tradition. Mm, that's, that's very, very early. Now you mentioned Paul. I want to talk about Paul right now because Paul was, sometimes people will say, well, don't you think it's kind of suspicious that only Jesus' followers saw him alive after he, he died? You know, sometimes you miss people so much when they die. Well, Paul is a great example of someone who did not miss Jesus, uh, was a persecutor, in fact, of the early followers He did not want Jesus. Jesus to be risen from the dead. <laughs> so we think about Paul. How soon after Jesus' crucifixion, Daryl, did Paul come to believe that he he had an experience with the risen Lord. Well, the appearance to Paul is dated somewhere within the first 18 months of, uh, of the post-resurrection period. So within 18 months of the death and resurrection of Jesus, a very early period. I want to go back and collect something that, w that uh, Justin alluded to, and mm -hmm. that is the physical nature of the expectation of this resurrection. There is a wonderful Jewish text, 2 Maccabees 7, that shows what the Pharisees' belief about resurrection is actually very graphically. The scene is a mother watching seven of her sons be executed in sequence, um, being mm -hmm. martyred for their faith because they kept the law. They wouldn't, they wouldn't eat pork. And in the midst of this text in, uh, in 2 Maccabees 7 and 10, as, as uh, son number three is being executed, it says this, after him the third was the victim of their sport, and when it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said nobly, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws I disdain them, and from him I hope to get them back again. And as a result, the king himself and those who were with him were astonished at the young man's spirit, for he regarded his sufferings as nothing. So here they are, they're executing him, they're actually dismembering him hmm. in the scene, and his Two brothers have been dismembered in front of him, and he holds out his hands and his tongue, and he says, you can cut these off. God's going to give them back to me mm. one day. That shows you how physical the perception yeah. of the resurrection was that mm. they had. Getting those arms back. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So um, so, so, the, so this, the physicality of this resurrection is important because we're not talking about you know, a reawakening of the soul. We're not talking about some form of uh, reincarnation or something like that. We're talking about a physical resurrection in a spiritual body that has a physical element to it. This is why the, in the appearances as well, Jesus takes food. He, it's mm -hmm. showing the physical nature of this resurrection. And the reason that's important is because sometimes when skeptics discuss the, uh, 
the appearance to Paul, they speak about a hallucination or something mm -hmm. like this that Paul had. Remember that the the non-conservative take on this is that um, that they had an experience, they had a they had a perception, but that perception isn't necessarily a reflection of the reality of what really took place. And so the idea here is that is that Paul, in one way or another, had a visionary experience of one kind or another, rather than some type of direct physical encounter uh, with the Lord. And and Paul seems to portray this as no evidence of this very physical resurrection that he actually is anticipating as a Pharisee happening again within eight months of the time that we're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the important thing about that is that um, Paul's got to be able to process this experience that he has. Mm -hmm. So the theology that feeds into his ability to recognize when the Lord speaks, you know, you're persecuting me and what that means, he immediately does is, ooh, that must mean he's – I'm talking to a risen, alive Jesus. Mm -hmm. That must mean that the preaching that I heard previously mm -hmm. Okay, is true. He can't process that experience without that previous experience. Mm -hmm. right. So the so the gap is not just the eighteen months. It's not the experience of Paul on the Damascus Road. The gap actually closes down to the message that Paul heard before that. He had been persecuting the church for some time. That's clear from the martyrdom of Stephen and other events that we see. Mm -hmm. And so we're literally closing that gap down on top of itself in terms of the events, in terms of the normal gap that we get between when a testimony is given and an event happens, short of autobiography, okay? Mm -hmm. um, we, we are about as good as it ever gets in the ancient world in terms of, right. of, of when this event is happening in relationship to when it happened. And this is happening also in a context in which everyone knows who Paul is. Everyone knows Paul used to persecute the church. Everyone knows that Paul Paul's view has changed. In fact, in Acts, we get testimony to the fact people were afraid to see and deal with him mm -hmm. because they had hard trouble believing you mean that guy is now on our side, mm -hmm. and so um, so it, so all this is designed to show um, how tight up against the time frame um, the testimony to the resurrection is in the in the gospel materials and mm -hmm. in the in the materials and acts that we have. And you and you could say that you know, with Peter, denied Christ three times, he's mm -hmm. in grief. He wants Jesus to be. You know the Messiah. He mm -hmm. wants him mm -hmm. to be. You know, maybe. You know. Oh, he had a hallucination. So, so because he really wanted it to be true. You can't argue that with Paul. Mm -hmm. yeah. Paul did not want Jesus. I mean, he thought he, th he probably thought Jesus was cursed by God by being nailed to that tree, mm -hmm. by based on Deuteronomy. And so mm -hmm. he he wanted Christians killed. He did not want Jesus risen from the dead. Yeah, you so he did have not a, want this to be true. You right? either have a very pathological Paul, okay, <laughs> or or you've got someone who experienced something that totally transfer transformed the way he looked at it. You know, the other thing that happens with the hallucination theory is, of course, that one of the groupings in that list is that he appeared to 500 at once. Mm -hmm. Okay, Now, that's a trick, to get 500 yeah. people to hallucinate on the same thing at the same mm -hmm. time. Uh, and so, so, so there are little hints along the way in the various ways that the tradition's been put together, whether we think about the women being at the opening of the empty tomb, or we think about the time between when Paul experiences uh, 
his appearance and and what he has to understand by the time he gets there and how early that means the theology is. Or we think about the five appearing to the 500 at once. Uh, in the midst of talking about the 500 at once, it says some of whom are alive even today mm-hmm. to make the point, hey, if you want to go check this out, you know, go talk to someone, uh, right. that kind of thing. Um, so, so there's something going on here, not to mention just the a, a extreme transfer of of conviction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that the apostles have as yeah. they launch this effort of the church mm-hmm. and what they're willing to risk in doing it. So this was either a very good psychological experience, <laughs> okay, or it was an experience. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And on those uh, three names that I listed, that that's actually listed in the creed. Pre- pretty interesting mm-hmm. that Peter, James, Jesus' brother, and Paul are the three that are mentioned in the creed, and they just happen to be, when you actually look at the evidence that we have for how did the apostles die? Mm-hmm. H- how did they die? How were they martyred? You know, you, a lot of times people say, oh, they were all martyred. Well, you know, we do have tradition that they were all martyred, but we don't have solid evidence that they were all martyred. We do have solid evidence that those in particular, those three in particular, Peter, hmm. James, mm-hmm. James even uh, testified by Josephus, not even mm-hmm. in the New Testament, mm-hmm. and uh, Paul were all martyred for their faith. They died believing. Well, what they claim they saw uh, in mm-hmm. that in that early so creed. At minimum, you have a follower. You have two skeptics. Exactly. And in an honor shame culture, how does that tie into um, Paul's experience? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, he definitely. You know, the 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 shame would have been. Um, you know, he he definitely would not have been proclaiming that unless he really believed that Jesus had risen mm-hmm. from the dead. Now, were there other messianic movements in in this time period? Yeah, th- th- this is a fascinating thing. I did a lecture on this, and and I couldn't believe that you know we actually have about fourteen other movements now. Not all claimed a messiah, but some sort of revolutionary type movement where they had a uh, charismatic leader, they had disciples that gathered around them, they fought. Many of them fought against Rome, and then they got crushed. You know, Maximus from uh, Gladiator came out mm. with this legion and crushed <laughs> mm-hmm. them. What happened? It was done. Everybody mm-hmm. went out and got jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they didn't continue the movement. They didn't, no, none of them had hallucinations. None of them said their leader mm-hmm. rose from the dead. And so when you look at all these, and I, ha- I have the list, but some of you might have heard of like Thutis or Judas the Galilean or uh, Simon Bar Kokhba. That was the last one. But these guys, when they died, when their leader died or their messianic figure died, it ended. The whole thing w- w- was done. There's no Bar Kokhba today. There's no, you know, we have Christianity, but there's no followers of Bar Kokhba today. Mm-hmm, Why is mm-hmm. that? And so it's, it's a historical question because the Jesus movement is in the same time period of all these other movements. And when their leader dies, so many of them were crucified, it's over. So what was it about Jesus that when he uh, is crucified, this movement explodes, like we mm-hmm. said, this conviction? What is it? People could say hallucinations. Well, why didn't they have hallucinations? Did they not want Bar Kokhba to still be the leader? Mm-hmm. What was it about Jesus, right? If, mm-hmm. you, don't, if you don't answer with the resurrection. I mean, you have a resurrection-sized hole in history. Hmm. And so I love what Blaise Pascal said in the in the 1600s. He said, who made them act? Who made the apostles act? You know, if Jesus was dead, how do you get your movement going when mm-hmm. you're dead? Mm-hmm. You know, how, mm-hmm. how did it explode? So, so I think it's a strong argument yeah, that's interesting. For, for, I mean, for the explosion of Christianity. If, if Jesus had stayed in the tomb, we might have some, maybe some Mishnaic kind of teaching from Jesus. We might have uh, some veneration of him somewhere, maybe, you know, at his tomb. But instead, we have his earliest followers um, in the Lord's Supper commemorating him. Uh, that, that's fairly interesting as well. Yeah, there, there are lots of interesting things going on here. You know, there's another part of this that I like to talk about that 
a lot of times people don't think about. And that is, you know, again, another skeptical claim is, well, the early church is making up these things as we go along and, and, and creating things that didn't happen. But if we actually look at the tradition itself, it, it doesn't give evidence of that. I, I think I would argue that if the early church were going around making appearances and that kind of thing, that what we could well expect is a detailed experience to Peter and James. Hmm. Okay? We don't have that. We have the fact that Jesus appeared to Peter and James, but we do not have an account in the gospel materials of what Jesus said to Peter or what Jesus said to James. Mm -hmm. If you're going to make up this story and try and build the credibility for something that isn't there, why are those missing? Hmm. Why aren't they a part of the tradition stream that we have, that kind of thing? And so. Um, so there are little hints along the way in terms of how the tradition is put together that tells you the, cons- the, the tradition was very conservative. You know, you didn't, you didn't create a, a vision where you didn't have a tradition of it. That's right. And so, um, so I, I think that's, that's an important feature in, in this equation as well. So we've got all these little pieces that are floating around the resurrection event that point to its credibility and the care with which the early church taught about the talked and discussed this. Mm-hmm. And that's a fascinating independent account too, the 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 Peter appearance because mm-hmm. you know Paul in that in that early creed he appeared first to Cephas to Peter, and then you have Luke twenty-four. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 two guys from the Emmaus road come back, and it says the Lord has appeared. And it's that same word, "ofte" in mm-hmm. Greek, has appeared to Simon. And so you have this two independent account. But again, you don't have like Dr. Buck said, you don't have this elaborate. You know story what was the word? What happened. was the blow by blow, word for word? You know, red letter edition. You of do that get appearance. it in the second century. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you legendary. get people filling gaps down the road. Absolutely, yeah, they fill the but gaps. But you don't. But you don't get it in the gospel materials themselves. It's it's almost as if the fact of the appearance is enough, right? And and so um, it, it's just an interesting dimension uh, to the way the tradition on the resurrection mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone who says, "Okay, well, here's all this historical data, but in the end, really, you can't investigate supernatural phenomenon, the miraculous, using the tools of history? That that's just kind of the wrong tool for it. How can we help those people?" Um, to take a look at the historical data seriously. Well, I think that's right. I mean, you can't. Uh, there's no way I can sit down and prove to you on the basis of historical data the resurrection absolutely happened, and here's a slam dunk case. Mm-hmm. What I can do is to say there's a lot of historical phenomena I got to be able to explain, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's either this or something else. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what is the something else that goes in that slot, right. and is that really any more plausible than than the types of things that we see, given the fact that we've got this intense martyrdom and this intense loyalty, that kind of thing. Now, the simple answer is is that people have died for fanatically believing that someone was was a you know a religious great and have been wrong in the past. That I mean that, that certainly I mean Jim Jones is kind of the old cult leader is the example of that kind of a category, and that certainly uh, does happen. But the interesting thing, and this is related to the religious movements that you talked about and the revolutionary movements that you talked about, is is that is that you don't see that happening so much in the ancient world. I mean, yeah. you see people committed to them, but once it falls apart, it mm-hmm. falls apart. 
They're mm-hmm. much different than 20th century Americans. Exactly. Movements. You know, and another interesting thing about that list that you give is that that list, because sometimes when people will say, where, you know, people claiming to be Messiah were a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. Jesus is one of one of many in that period. But if you actually look at that list that Justin alluded to earlier, the bulk of those examples come from after the time of Jesus. There are a handful in AD 6 when the, when the tax is imposed on on Israel and a few people react to the fact that you mean Rome's going to actually try and extract taxes from us? No way, we're not paying. Mm-hmm. You know, no taxation without representation. <laughs> and so, um, um, and, and the bulk of that list comes from later on down the road. Uh, and, and so, that's actually an, it's actually an exaggeration to suggest that messiahs were popping up kind of on every corner in Galilee during mm-hmm. this period. And you had a couple of people revolting in the early period. You had the you have the Jesus group, and then you ha- you do have quite a lot of people revolting, leading into the war in sixty six and seventy that led to the destruction of the temple, mm-hmm. and then of course you get the Bar Kokhba rebellion at the early part of the second century, mm-hmm. which is kind of the culmination of it all because that time when Rome puts that rebellion down, they say enough of this, yeah, and they really study Torah. they <laughs> crush it, Torah. they crush it, they crush it completely, and and uh, and the opportunity to have any kind of rebellion goes away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of them in particular, I think it's the Simon Bar Giora, who's one of the guys who leading up to about AD 66, so leading up to the to the AD 70, he predict he says the temple's going to be destroyed. Mm. Uh, he ends up getting paraded by the Romans. He gets flogged. He gets crucified. But again, his movement, nothing. Mm. I mean, you have such a parallel with Jesus. Mm. And so what, what was it about those disciples? Why didn't they want Simon mm-hmm. to come back? Why didn't know? they learn from the Christians? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> why wouldn't they even have it from the Christians? There's yeah, a way to right. do this, you know? Right. But they still, they were like, no, well, if he's – if he's crucified, that means he wasn't the Messiah. Mm-hmm. That, that shows mm-hmm. that he, it was a failed mission. He was wrong, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I think the disciples of Jesus believed. I think they believed, just mm-hmm. like the guys on the Emmaus Road, he was wrong. We had hoped he was re- he would redeem Israel, but he was not because he was crucified. Yeah. There's yeah. another. There's another final point that f- fills into all of this, and that is the way in which these leaders are portrayed while these events are happening is another example of the criterion of embarrassment. I mean, the women show up to declare the tomb empty. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Had told them that, that he was going to be raised from the dead. They didn't believe it at the time when they did. They couldn't process it. The women show up and say the tomb's empty, and their reaction is, "Oh yeah, Jesus said this, this in Galilee. That's what <laughs> happened." No, they think. Mm-hmm. It's been a few tough days. You need to get some rest, ladies. Yeah. You know, they, they react. They react as normally. I like to tell people they may be ancients, but they're reacting like modern people. And in the midst of doing that, they, they're portrayed as completely missing it. Okay, again. Would the early church represent their leaders in such a way? These are people now that they're supposed to trust and follow. Well, again, the reason these failures are in the story is because these failures are a part of the story, mm-hmm. and they're another mm-hmm. element that shows the mm-hmm. truthfulness yeah. of what's being portrayed. Ring of truth too. Well, we have talked about a lot of material in this in this segment. We talked about uh, the appearances to to Paul and the different movements that were around. But I think what, what our audience can, can begin to see now is that even if people don't accept um, the Bible as the Word of God, there is historical data there that's good enough for people to take that material seriously mm-hmm. and really look into the, the, the chief claim of the Christian faith that Jesus really is the Messiah who he claimed to be, that he rose from the dead, and that ultimately he offers us hope 
and life everlasting. There is a reason for the season. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you, Daryl, so much for being with us today. And thank you, Justin. And we hope that you will tune in once again uh, to the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.